I think it's pretty clear that knowledge uh, is not sufficient to do mm. the right thing. It's interesting that in, in church, we preach at people for 30, 45 minutes, we put knowledge in their head, mm. and we expect that their behavior will be changed. Mm. But if knowledge is not a sufficient condition for changing behavior, maybe we need something else. And I, So I think that something else in my own life has been those other people who have, one, been given permission to see me clearly, mm. and two, uh, been given permission to tell me the truth about myself. So this community mm. of people who says, you know that's not the right thing to do, but I still see you doing it. Yeah. Welcome to the Four Fires Podcast, where we talk about winning in all four of the essential areas of life. And here's your host, Alan Kemper. Well, welcome to the Four Fires Podcast. Today I have with me Stephen Wares, and we're going to talk about some of the more more things around the Purpose Fire. But before we jump in there, I would just like to point you to the, the Four Fires tribe. And one of the things that we talk about in the tribe is this, this need for community, that real life change happens in community. So, so we encourage people to be a part of what we call Fire Circles, which is a community of men who are getting together and are pressing on one another, holding each other accountable. Really, they're doing life together as we all go down this Four Fires journey. So if that's something that you're interested in being a part of, check out the Four Fires tribe. There's a link in the bio to that. So today, Stephen Wares, we have you in the studio. It's good to have you. Good to be here. Yeah. So today, uh, we want to lean in and talk about specifically the Purpose Fire. It is a, a thing that impacts a lot of what we do. So, so that's going to be our topic for the day. Before we do that, can you give us an intro? Who are you? What do you do? Why, why are we talking to you, Stephen? Sure, yeah. So uh, Stephen wears, and I'm, I'm 38. I'm married, have been married 16 years now. I have two daughters, Vivian and Ellie, uh, nine years old and seven years old, respectively. And for work, uh, I'm the chief academic officer and the chief information officer at Point University. Uh, my academic training is in historical theology or church history, mm-hmm. but I'm also a gigantic computer nerd, so I ended up doing a lot of technology stuff as well. So I have an odd mixture of two roles. Hobby-wise, I love to fish. I grew up saltwater fishing in Florida, and I've been doing a lot more woodworking. Uh, when you work with people all the time, Occasionally, it's nice to see a finished product that you created because people are never finished. Uh, People are never finished. It's a little bit about me. For sure. So the topic for the day is our purpose fire. And specifically, you know, when we look at our purpose fire, we, we think about it as having these two components. It's first your connectedness with your creator. And that's founded on this premise of first, you have to believe that you have a soul. If you, if you think that there is something in you that is in a, eternal, then that begs the question, okay, where did that eternal element of me come from? Does it have a creator? If, you're, if you have a soul and it has a creator, then there's two more questions you need to ask. One is, does that creator want to be in relationship with that soul that it created? Or did they just create the soul and spin it off into the cosmos and and don't care. So that's the first question. Does my creator want to be in relationship with me? And that's what we call our connectedness, part of our purpose fire. And then the second question is, is 
does that creator care about my behaviors while I'm on this little chunk of dirt called Earth? Is there a expectation for the things I will or won't do? And so our purpose fire is made up of our connectedness, so our relationship with our creator, and our commitments. These are the behaviors and the choices that we make on a day-to-day basis as a byproduct of an identity as a son or a daughter of the creator. In the Christian space, those, those, that connectedness and those commitments mirror the two greatest commandments, which are love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your spirit. And the second one, your commitments are love your neighbor as yourself. So that's a long way of saying today we're going to talk about the choices that we make on the daily because of an identity as a son or a daughter. So, Stephen, why don't we start the conversation around what are some of the things in your life, whether they be spiritual disciplines, whether they be actions, that you feel like have had impact on your spiritual health for the good? Yeah, great question. I'm going to back up before I uh, answer the, the end of the question. I think a lot of times we see these two, the two kind of axes, the, the relationship with God and the relationship with other people as somehow uh, disconnected hmm. and, or, or separate from each other, yeah. and I don't think they are. So I think one of the fundamental um, things we learn about humans early on in, in the Bible is that humans are made in the image of God. Hmm. And the question is, well, what does that even mean? Obviously, we, we don't look like God because God doesn't have a body. So I think what it means is whatever it means to be human means to act like God. Mm. So that somehow when we act towards our neighbor or even our enemy, Jesus would have us say, that reflects my relationship with God. And so one of the, the ways I think about this uh, is in my relationships— uh, with other people, am I acting in their best interest for their good, or am I seeking something from them? That's a question I have to ask myself pretty regularly. And when I look at at the life of Jesus, Jesus is, even when people don't know it, working in their best interest. And so uh, when I think about what has had a, a big impact on me spiritually, I don't first think about practices. I think about people. Mm. And uh, it's been people who have um, opened their lives to me with the only intention being that I be a better version of myself or that, that I function as God intended me to. Um, so they, they gave of themselves to me. And, it, you know, times like when I was a college student, I, I really had nothing that they could have been trying to use me for. Right, yeah. um, so it, it was just this, um, exactly what Jesus does, right? I, I have nothing that I can give back to Jesus that Jesus needs from me, mm. yet Jesus still gives himself to me. That's a, I have a problem with that. I'm selfish. I haven't figured it out yet. Mm-hmm. But it, the times in my life when people have mirrored that part of who God is to me, has drastically shaped my life. Yeah. My favorite part about doing a podcast is when uh, 
when you go and ask a question and then the person flips the question back on you and go, let me ask a better question <laughs> than what you just asked. Because it is like, it's not about, I think what you said is it's not about the practices, it's about the people. And what I, what I just took from that was that we cannot walk through life thinking that our relationship with God and our relationship with, with the people that we interact with can be divorced from each other. The quickest and best way for me to demonstrate or to have that connectedness with the creator is a representation of how I'm behaving towards my fellow man. Is that the is that the the crux there? Yeah. Gosh, and it's so easy to jump in. So that's almost like a an attitude or a positioning rather than the practices. The practices would would be a natural byproduct of that of that position or that attitude towards your fellow man. Yeah, and, and you know, don't get me wrong. I I have practices. I um, read scripture daily. I have a prayer book actually that sits on my desk, huh. and before I turn on my computer, uh, the the computer is where the problems come in. <laughs> um, you know, via email or a yeah. Zoom call or something. Uh, but before I turn it on, I uh, go through morning prayer, mm. and uh, it's to remind me that there are people on the other end of this thing and that if I'm not bathing all the interactions I have in prayer, then I'm not going to be doing it right. I also, I work right on the Georgia-Alabama border and I was not very good about this when I first moved into a managing people role, but one of my practices now is taking walks Mm. and certain people in my life know that if they see me at certain parts of 18th Street, mm-hmm. they understand how big the stressor is. It's a, it's a big stressor, um, a little stress, yeah. But but that's a discipline for me because I, I can on occasion run a little hot. And if I do not take time to work through something, I can say something I regret or mm. pour gas on a fire. Um, so I think that's part of maturing is not not just saying what comes to mind right off the bat, is, is praying about it first, thinking about it first, giving up, having to be right, or the privilege of being right. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes I can be right and the, the outcome is wrong. Mm. Um, so I'm, those are some of the practices I, I work on, I think. Yeah. Well, self-control, emotional restraint. And, and these are things that when we see them in a person, we recognize them as being emotionally mature, uh, but also there's a, a spiritual maturity that mm-hmm. comes with that as well. Or maybe that even is the driver of a lot of self-control. So let's talk about, let's talk about self-control. What, where are the, the spaces in our life where we have a tendency to not exhibit self-control? Mm-hmm. And you and I have had some conversations about, you know, our bodies get us in trouble mm-hmm. and our, you know, like, and you have some interesting thoughts in this space. Uh, yeah, in, yeah. Kind of informed by a lot of your academic learning. And, and so, yeah, unpack that for us as we think about how can we think about self-control and restraint as we are in these little meat sacks on this planet uh, with our minds and our hearts and our souls all packaged inside of the same little body. Yeah. That's a that's a super interesting question, and I, I've never really thought about it uh, too much before. But even the phrase "self control" uh, is pretty interesting. Uh, I could tell you the Greek word that underlies it, but that's not useful here. Mm. Um, but but that word implies almost that there are like two parts of us, right? We have mm. we have the one part that needs to be controlled, and the mm. other part 
that is doing, doing the, the controlling. controlling. Yeah. Um, and so when I think about that, at first that seems it's like, of course, I'm just one person. But then if you think about your own experience of life, I think you get what's happening there. So one of the, one of the things I talk about with my, my students is uh, there are things we know we ought not do. Mm. And, and we're very clear on that. We have the information. So I know now as a middle-aged man, I'm admitting that I'm middle-aged, <laughs> that I cannot consume calories um, in the same way I used to be able to. And so if I'm staying up late on a Friday night and I'm, you know, maybe watching Extraction 2 or whatever new action movie is out, it's 11 o'clock, I'm sitting on my couch, starting to feel a little bit hungry. And you know what? The box of Cheez-Its is calling my name. But I know, I've read the nutrition label, I know this is not a good idea. But the, it's like there are two parts of me, right? Mm. I've, I've got the one part that's like my guts part mm. that is like, you really need Cheez-Its. <laughs> uh, and then my head part is like, but you know your doctor's going to be upset about cholesterol. Yeah. Um, and so I think this, this phrase self-control is a way of acknowledging that um, sometimes internally we can be at cross purposes. Um, and this is actually not new. Um, people have been talking about this and how to deal with it for a long time. So Plato, the, the philosopher, he had this image um, of, a, of a human soul, and he, he thought it had three parts. Okay. Um, and he used this image of a, a chariot driver. Okay, So with the chariot, you have uh, the driver and the two horses and the, the thing being pulled. And so in, in his mind, uh, the driver, which the word there is lagos, um, which means something like reason. So this is like the the rational part of a human is is supposed to be driving. But then you have these two horses. And the thing about horses is they're a lot bigger than humans and they're really stinking powerful. Um, you don't want to be on the business end of a horse when it's upset. Um, so these horses, um, if they are not controlled, right, we put bits in, in the mouth of horses to control them. If they are not controlled, they can easily pull the chariot wherever they want to go. And Plato thinks this is the fundamental problem of um, the human soul is that we have these really unruly horses and that the the thing we need to do is somehow learn how to make the horses go where we want them to go. And a lot of times that's just really hard to do in the moment. Um, you have to train the horses pretty well. Um, and I actually think it's instructive um, the way he th- – th- these two horses represent different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's actually a pretty good division of uh, maybe what it means to be human. So the first horse um, is the, – the word in Greek is epithumia. That, that word actually gets used a lot in the New Testament, and it means something like desire. And in the context of its use, we're not talking about any desire. We're talking about uh, appetitive desire, so appetite. Mm. So it can be food. Um, it can be sexual appetite, so lust. It can be appetite for money or possessions, which is greed. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the horses that can really get humans off track. The other horse uh, is Thumas, which is – it's hard to translate, but it, I would say it means something like the hot parts, like the like anger. Mm. Um, but the thing about these horses is they're not uniformly bad. Right, yeah. because anger is the flip side of a human's desire for justice—that things be right, right. Um, that people be treated fairly. 
And lust, right, is um, sexual desire improperly placed. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no problem with you placing that desire on your wife or me placing that desire on my wife. And actually, human relationship with God is not um, sexual, but it's described in equally strong terms. Mm-hmm. So uh, the problem with the horses is not that they're horses. The problem with the horses is that they get aimed at the wrong thing. Mm. They're uncontrolled. They're uncontrolled, yeah. Um, And so I tell my students, I I try to put really bizarre images in their head so they remember them. And so I say, well, you got to keep your horse on the leash. Nobody puts a horse on, you know, that's not what you do. Um, And and one of the ways I think we put our horses on the leash is by training them ahead of time. So Mm -hmm. that, you know, really the best defense against me eating Cheez-Its at 11 p.m. is to not have Cheez-Its in the house. You know, it is really hard to make a good decision in the heat of the moment. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think a lot of us, so take take driving. We got a lot of heat of the moment examples in driving. Um, okay. There are appropriate and inappropriate hand signals to give while driving. Uh, and, and most of the time, if you get cut off, um, there's going to be this like instant split second wrath, yeah. thumas, anger um, sort of reaction where you might be tempted to give uh, somebody, uh, the wrong kind of hand signal. Yeah. And when we're in the heat of the moment, we're not intercepting this impulse that we have. Right. Um, so the question is, how can I train myself over the long run so that that the natural thing that I do is not the angry thing? Mm-hmm. So we have this phrase, um, something is second nature for a person. So we're, you know, it might be natural to flip the bird to somebody, but if I work on keeping my horses on the leash, like what if I was able, and I'm not saying I'm able to do this yet, what if I was able to offer some sort of quick prayer of blessing for the person who just cut me off? Hmm. That takes practice and premeditation. Hmm. You don't naturally do that, but it can become second nature. Yeah. Oh, I, like the, I like the term second nature uh, because it is not in a horse's first nature to, to be led with a, led yeah. with a saddle and a bit, but very powerful when they are. Mm-hmm. But their nat their first nature is to run wild and free, and they must be tamed like a cowboy riding a horse to break the horse mm-hmm. is breaking it of its first nature and and converting that power into its second yeah. nature. I had a question about Thumas. Is it is it fair to say that that you said it is kind of described as the the hot parts. Can it be emotion? Is it is it just yeah these emotions that drive us, that force us, or that that coax us into reacting instead of responding? Yeah. So it's this this thing that that just kind of wells up, and you see it right. You see it when somebody's face flushes. Yeah. Um, which can be anger or embarrassment. The, this kind of uncontrollable emotion, and I'm. Honestly, I'm working really hard on this myself. Yeah. Uh, well, it sounds so. It sounds like that your your practice, your spiritual practice of going for a walk, is, is a way of is an intentional thing that you're doing to make sure you're bridling that horse. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it is it is real work, and it has to happen over time. Uh, you know, I think I understand a lot more about what it means to be human now that I'm raising children. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you take a two-year-old, they just flip their biscuits. They they have 
no leash for the horses. And it's not developmentally appropriate at that point. Um, They cannot control. So they have tantrums and all the anger and all the uh, desire, which at that point is not sexual, obviously. But all of that is just unbridled. Mm. Um, And we call them terrible twos for a reason. Um, The problem is some adults don't grow out of that. They have no desire to control the horses that are leading them to destruction, basically. Yeah. So the the logos represents this reason. Is that is that that fair to say? It's our mind. Is it? it that yeah. Is the, where the self restraint comes from. So um, it's our mind, but I think it's pretty clear that knowledge uh, is not sufficient to do mm-hmm. the right thing, and and that's really clear when you raise kids too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, your kid breaks a rule, and you you can ask the kid did you know that was wrong? Mm -hmm. And you know 100% that they know. And they know 100% that they know. And uh, it's interesting that in in church, uh, we preach at people for 30, 45 minutes, we put knowledge in their head, Mm -hmm. and we expect that their behavior will be changed. Mm -hmm. But if knowledge is not a sufficient condition for changing behavior, maybe we need something else. And So I think that's something else in my own life has been those other people who have, um, one, been given permission to see me clearly, Mm. and two, uh, been given permission to tell me the truth about myself. So this community Mm. of people who says, you know that's not the right thing to do, but I still see you doing it. So one of the things we say, knowledge is, is understanding, but wisdom is understanding plus application. Yeah. And, you know, you might, you might tell me, Alan, here is, here is the importance of compounding interest. And if you will invest in your 20s, uh, you can make lots and lots of money by the time you're in your 60s. And I can know all of that. And if I don't actually do anything and start the account and put money into it, then it's just knowledge. It's not wisdom. It, yeah. Because it had, I didn't apply it. Yeah, and then I get to my sixties, and I'm very frustrated because I knew the whole time yep. that I could have a whole lot more money now because I wasn't wise. I was knowledgeable, but not wise. Yeah, and I think the the movement from knowledge to wisdom requires practice. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not you. You don't just flip a switch and get there. You you try it. You keep doing it slowly. You build muscle memory, mm-hmm. um, and eventually it becomes second nature. And so like take the compounding interest thing. Um, I know that I will always find because of the, uh, the desire, I will always find things to spend my money on. Right. Um, so what I've done because of what I know is that comes out of my paycheck first and it automatically goes into my Roth or my 401k Mm -hmm. before I have a chance to touch it. Um, so it's, how can I do that with the other parts of my life? Um, When I am in my right mind, make a decision that keeps me from having to make one in the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I was, uh, when I was in high school and college, uh, and I was dating, I knew, and well, I screwed up enough times to know that I was not strong enough or smart enough to say no in the situation. So I had to say no to the situation Yeah. before, before I got myself in a place that I didn't want to be. Um, and I think, so what you're talking about is using that logos, that reason to recognize and to bridle and control 
this epithumia, the desires of our lives, and the thumos, which is the emotion of our lives. And I like that you pointed out, like, these are both things that aren't necessarily bad. They are the things that move us in life, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it is growth and development and improvement, wanting to raise your standard of income and living. Is that is that wrong? Well, no. Is greed, like the the unbridled nature of that wrong? Yeah, it's, it, it leads to destruction. It will take you off the cliff. Yeah, you don't want a car without an engine. Neither do you want a car without a steering wheel. Okay, so I, I like that. I think that gives me a good framework to think about uh, self-control is this ability to try to rein in these other things. And I do notice, you know, at, as I go through life, there is a natural maturing that I feel happens for many people. Um, so maybe it gets easier to control some of these things, or maybe we just get more practiced at it. Um, yeah, I think I think we build the muscle. I have matured, but I so I've taken a side interest um, over the past few years in behavioral economics, mm. and one of the things that's uh, been most interesting to me, and it, it, it relates to this, is um, physiological decision fatigue. So have you ever uh, gotten home at the end of, end of a day of work, and you have to decide what to eat for dinner or, or where to eat, and you just, you just can't? Or you've had that conversation with your friends, well, no, gee, you just decide what we're going to eat, or yeah. you decide what you're going to do. It's just like you physically can't. Well, there's a physiological, when you make decisions, um, you are utilizing some of the, the glucose. I'm probably mm-hmm. screwing up the, the science, but um, there there is a physiological tax um, mm. as you go throughout the day making decisions. And so one of the things that I've tried to think about uh, with myself is, okay, if I make it to 11 o'clock and I'm watching a movie, my physiological capital for making good decisions was spent by 5 p.m. Yeah. So how, how is it that I can account for the fact that I'm going to be less good at keeping my horses on a leash the later I get in the day? Or the more I introduce other things that inhibit good decisioning into my life, like alcohol, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so how, how is it that I can be aware of not just my will or reason, but physiological things that also impact decision-making? Yeah, that's a... Um Physiological decision fatigue. I know that I make worse decisions late at night than I do first thing in the morning. In the line of work that we we do in coaching, I notice a lot of what I call emotional work. Mm-hmm. Right. So if if I say, all right, let's max out on bench press, and you're fresh, well, you'll get one number. But if I say, all right, now do a hundred burpees, and then do a hundred push-ups, and then go run a half marathon, and now come back and let's see you max out on the bench press, you're going to get a different number because you're tired, and we understand that physiologically. Emotionally, there is work that's being done as well. So if I have to go to work and I am dealing with a boss or coworkers who are garbage, Mm -hmm. then when I come home and my child makes an ask of me, or my spouse makes an ask, and then me you snap. That is the equivalent of Alan. I need I need for you to do your emotional bench press max. Yeah, right now. Then I don't have the 
the oomph to be able to give them that level of performance, which is why having a healthy work environment matters for all of the other areas of our lives. But I've never thought about that there actually might be a physiological component, like literally to the brain, like the brain and the decision-making. Is there any research on what can we do to make better decisions? Is there a drink that we can drink? <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you drink a Coke, you'll make better decisions? Or uh... Yeah, there's tons on the sort of neurochemistry of, of decision-making. But the, the interesting thing for me is that, you know, you talk about the four fires and you talk about souls. It is not as if I have ever encountered a soul um, that is disconnected from a body. Mm. And if the stuff that we're learning from neuroscience is true— my ability to make good moral decisions is connected to the well-being of my body. You know, if my ability to resist temptation, right, that's a, we're talking about decision, yeah. has been fatigued. Because what, of my body. Yeah, th- those two things are not separate um, it is the, that, that's Ooh. the takeaway, I think. The charioteer and the horse are... Uh... They're always in a body. They're never They're a not in a body. common unit. I've always thought of the the soul, how the soul impacts so many of the other areas of it's life. It's a two way street. But I had not thought about how the the body impacts and the state and the health of the body that I am keeping and caring for impacts my ability to make good and righteous decisions. Yeah. So, like, if you just think about all the weird phrases we have in English, I'll I'll use one as an example. Um, You've probably heard somebody say, you know, I I really didn't sleep last night. I'm just not myself. Hmm. Um, You are never not yourself. You are always yourself. Right. Um, But it's somehow related linguistically to this self-control phrase. Hmm. Like, (laughs) I'm having trouble being who I want to be right now. I think is what we're trying to say in both of those cases. If I sleep less Mm -hmm. or if I am hungry, uh, allegedly, my wife tells me, I am more cranky. Um, (laughs) I think there's plenty of empirical evidence to show that this is true. I am always myself. Mm. And I think we have trouble owning that sometimes. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, So this idea of integrity of being... So when, so if your soul is this, and I don't know, understand all of the theology of this, but if when God knit Alan together in Martha's womb and, and, and bestowed upon me this soul that was integrated into this body, there was an intent. Mm-hmm. There was a, a hope. There was a, you know... Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, like this, these right choices, this right path. So if there was an intent for who Alan could become, the closest version of what, how Jesus turned out, and then, but then I have this free will thing that's layered on top of that intent, mm-hmm. and I steer my chariot uh, because of the thumos and the epithumia if i steer that chariot in a direction that's counter to or if you let the the chariot steer you the horses steer that's you that's right yeah just take the, yeah, take yeah. me wherever they want to go who i was designed to be and who i 
become on the daily on a daily basis look very different. So this idea of integrity of being is when the desires of your soul overlap and mm. match up with the actions of your day. Yeah, and uh, I mean to poke on another thing is I think in the West, at least, we like to think of ourselves as as having lots of self-control and being able to decide and therefore act. Okay. But a, a lot of times the way it, it actually works is you have to do something um, and practice it in order to develop healthy desire. Um, so if you, if you Take food as an example. Um, we will naturally gravitate towards sweet and salty foods. Um, you know, we've got a physiological preference for that. Um, but we can, by practice, train ourselves to desire um, things that are more healthy for us. Mm-hmm. And that's like the reverse. Like, I will, I train myself to like black coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, and at first, I I didn't like it, but yeah. but a, if you do it enough with intention, you can yeah kind of rewire so desire. Good example, I did the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's cheaper, it's better. Um, I'm a coffee snob now, but uh, so we often think it, it it's about the decision and then action. But sometimes you got to fake it till you make it until you you get the right desire. So choose choose the right thing. Make the choice. Choose the right thing. And eventually like it. And eventually Um, you will like it. Yeah. So what are some of the things that you work with college kids a lot? What are some of the areas in people's lives that you see those two horses creating chaos for their spiritual lives, for their, like, what are the areas that if you were going to pick two or three things that people need to be mindful of with their logos that would help them further go further down the road with less speed bumps or less wrecking of their lives? I guess the, I mean, the first one is um, college students. They just need to keep their special bits to themselves. Um, So we, you know, we, we culturally have put so much um, emphasis on, ourselves as sexual beings. Yeah. Um, and it's just totally out of proportion um, with with how we actually live in the world. Um, so one of the things I, I constantly challenge my friends on, uh, friends and students, uh, what, if, what if we tried to, um, in our lives, view fidelity as um, one of the primary markers of identity for ourselves? Um, so what, what does it mean for me to be a person who is faithful and trustworthy in all of my relationships? Mm. Um, that, that's like a really powerful question. It's a portable question. It, it applies to my relationship with my wife. It applies to my relationships with my students, with my parents. What, you know, what do I need to do to be trustworthy and faithful? Um, so I think, you know, Lust is this this thing, and it burns bright. And you know, when you're in your twenties, it's this kind of feels all consuming. Mm. But if you're not a trustworthy person, your life will be a wreck. Mm-hmm. So I, I see those t- lust and fidelity 
as being um, these sort of competing things. And um, I am trying to always be more trustworthy. Um, and, and that's integrity, right? Is, is my word good for anything? Can somebody count on me um, even when there's nothing in it for me? Um, and that's, that's a challenge. So I, th- I think that's one of the things that kind of leads um, young people away. It just, you know, j- basic habits like sleep, like, mm-hmm. it, it, and you know, when I'm, I, I work at a at a Christian university, but you know what, students at Christian universities still drink and you know do yeah. things like that. Yeah. And w- one of the things I talk about with them is like, all your friends know. Obviously, you don't know because you wouldn't do such mm-hmm. things. But all your friends know that the consumption of alcohol is is generally a bell shaped curve, um, and it it is pleasant for a little while um, until it's not. Yeah. Um, and and so it's just just things like that that when you are young. And even when you're older, being able to regulate um, the point at which something goes from being good and um, good for you to being bad and bad for you, mm. um, it, it's often a, a question of how much, not if. Yeah. Um, sa- same with food, right? Um, yep. Good and good for you is often um, directly related to quantity. Mm-hmm. So, And um, not enough also. And know. not enough, yeah, yeah. Um, so there, it goes in both directions, and that that's the thing about the lagos or moderating the horses. You, you know, you you keep them, you don't stop them yeah, you don't from hobble, going. Hobble them. Yeah, yeah. Um, you just want them to go where you the right want them the right to go. spot. Yeah. When we're young, you know, the the gift of youth is energy, the gift of age is wisdom. Mm-hmm. So, one of the things you know, this idea of I think historically we've. We've had a more blended culture, meaning between for age strata, mm-hmm. where the, the young would more regularly interact with people 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road from them. Uh, and I f- feel like that there's uh, some bracketing, some, some uh, siloing yeah. that's happening in our society where young people will only listen to young people and may not interact. And, and similarly... You know, the I think the young keep the older young, and the young uh, old keep the young from making young type decisions. Yeah, it, and, but when you stop having sort of intergenerational relationships, you lose a lot. So, like, if you th- when I think about um, Gen Z, well, I- if I think about myself, mm-hmm. um, what this thing has done to me, and this the fact, being your phone, this being my phone, um, the fact that that Apple introduced the, the three little dots when somebody is typing an iMessage mm. um, has done, like, what if, what if all these Gen Z people who have serious patience problems um, were to interact with somebody who either had to do a, a phone call where two people had to be by a phone that was mm. physically attached to the wall um, or had to write an actual letter? Um, maybe, maybe those folks, maybe the boomers have something to teach Gen Z people about patience in a mm. way that would reframe some of the addiction we have to our phones. Mm. Um, I don't know. I, but I think there's value in, in having that mixture. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. Just, seeking, just seeking out that wisdom from, uh, from another, yeah. from a different generation or a different perspective. We have these commitments that we try to live into. And some of that shows up as 
being able to control my desires and my appetites as well as some of my emotions and not just being a slave to wherever those horses want to drag me. Uh, because if I let the horses drag me, uh, I end up in places that I don't want to go. Mm-hmm. And so there is some muscle and some discipline that you've talked about is the ability to start learning to contra- control and restrain those horses. And so these commitments, this, when I, we talk about in the Purpose Fire, the commitments, it is making choices and living into decisions that would give us this integrity of being. This, this idea of my life looking like the blueprint of my life that's written on my soul. If you had a new person on a spiritual journey, if, if somebody were listening to this and going, okay, they keep talking about this purpose fire thing, and I, they used a lot of academic words, and, but I do think I have a soul, and I do think I need to make it healthier. What are three things that you would point me to in terms of behaviors and practices that would begin, like if you were telling somebody who's never worked out in the gym before, I'm not going to tell them to start with, you know, squat clean, you know, like, like we're not going complicated. We're starting with, let's do some push-ups. Yeah. Let's do some air squats. What are some things that are healthy behaviors for my soul uh, that kind of like you said, fake it till I make it Mm -hmm. so that I can begin to develop these healthy attitudes and appetites. Mm. Say first, find a buddy. Second, give them permission to tell you the truth. So take, take the, take the gym thing. If, if you want to develop a habit, um, it is a lot easier to make an excuse to stay in bed if you don't have to call somebody mm-hmm. and if that somebody doesn't have the option to call you out. Typically, you see yourself less clearly than you think you do. Mm. And frequently, you need somebody who is trustworthy. They, it, this has to be a trustworthy person, but you need somebody who can help you see yourself when you can't. Mm. Um, that's been very important uh, in my life. And a lot of times, it is most helpful for me if that person is outside of my immediate day-to-day context, uh, because they will not have any of the biases um, that come from knowing all the people and things. Um, They can see me reacting to external things that they might not be familiar with, because that's that's what I, I cannot control the actions of other people. But if somebody can see the way those cause me to move, they might say, that is not a healthy way to react, whatever the externality is. Yeah. Um, so I, th- I, for me, community is just radically important. It, it's at the core. And so I'll be a nerdy theologian for just a second. God, so if, if I'm made in the image of God, um, in Christian theology, we believe that God is Trinity. Mm-hmm. So that what it means to be God, the one God, is to be Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect communion, Mm. so that if I am not um, in some sort of communion or community, um, I am probably not bearing Mm. the image of God to the full extent. You can't be a hermit and fully living into 
Yeah. And the interesting thing about all these hermits back in the day, like the, these people who went out and lived in the desert and in caves and stuff, is that eventually people came and found them. They were like, you're talking to God all, all day? Um, I could use a nugget of wisdom. Um, so eventually the, the people forced their hand hmm. to be back in some sort of community. Otherwise, they are stunting a part of their God-given image, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean— so, so the top two, you say, it was, it was really interesting the way you phrased it. Find a buddy who will speak truth. Yeah. You, you put in another way, get in community and find accountability. Yeah. Somebody who 100%. will call you on your stuff. The healthy practice is starts with community, not with solitary, get in a closet and pray, not with you know, be by yourself and fast. And I think that that's an important piece. I think a lot of people, when they think, oh, I'm a spirit, if I got to work on my spirituality, they think of it as a solo journey. Uh, yeah, they start with this sort of heroic, I've got, I've got to go for the, the most heroic thing. But the, the way to develop a habit is to just make it boring and mm. do it daily, mm. to show up at the gym even when you feel like crap. Yep. Um, and th- that's the real heroic thing is, is consistency. Yeah. Um, but, the, but the community piece, I think there's a lot of people who are quick to throw out the church, throw yeah. out community, and just say, well, I'm, I have my own spiritual relationship, in the, but, but I don't need— It's abstract. Yeah, um, I just have my own—me and God are good. Me and Jesus are good, but I don't really want to interact much with those people. Yeah, but the problem is the horses are stronger than us, and we actually need other people to help us bear the burdens. Jesus mm-hmm. talks about that. Paul, with his metaphor of the body, talks about um, how, how we have to help each other. And so we fundamentally deceive ourselves if we think we can do it on our own. Mm-hmm. We don't ever give up personal responsibility um, but part of that responsibility is finding real community. That's good. No, I think I, li- I like that. Uh, I like that take on spiritual growth and development starts in community based around truth. So you heard it here first. <laughs> if you are looking for some degree of community and accountability, a four fires tribe is a great place to find people who would be a third party to look into your life. And then speak truth to you in a way that maybe you can't see for yourself. Uh, that's what we do in fire circles. So, Stephen, I really appreciate you being here with us today. That was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. So uh, <laughs> thank you for sharing of your wisdom. And join us next time on the Four Fires podcast. 